Section 2 of the National Geographic Magazine, Volume 7, December 1896. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Sage Plains of Oregon by Frederick V. Coville, Botanist of the U.S. Department of Agriculture. The states of Washington and Oregon are cut in half from north to south by a great mountain range known as the Cascades. By this climatic barrier, the eastern portions of these two states are transformed into a great arid plain centering about the valley of the Columbia River. The eastern limit of the plain is the western base of the Bitterroot Mountains toward the north and of other ranges belonging to the Rocky Mountain system further south. Thus is formed a great wedge-shaped area, its base toward the south, where the plains are continuous with those of Nevada, and its apex toward the north, where the plain is finally shut in by the boreal forest belt which connects the northern end of the Bitterroots with the northern end of the Cascades. Near the center of this triangle, in northeastern Oregon, rises a great irregular mass of rock known as the Blue Mountains, which, projecting into the plain from the eastward, almost divides it into two portions, the resultant plain's area being roughly of the shape of a dumbbell, the upper half lying in Washington, the lower half in Oregon, and the two connected by a narrow neck in the mid-northern portion of the latter state. The area is drained largely by the Columbia River, which has cut its way through the Cascades to the Pacific, in the southern portion of Oregon, the streams in many places find no outlet to oceanic waters, but flow into alkaline lakes and marshy sinks, from which their water either percolates into the soil to find an outlet elsewhere, or is evaporated into the dry atmosphere. In altitude, the plains range from less than 500 feet along the Columbia River Valley to 4,000 and even 5,000 feet in the more distant portions. From north to south in a direct line, the extreme length of the plains is about 450 miles. From east to west in the northern portion, about 150, and in the southern portion, about 250 miles. The relatively narrow neck connecting the two, being constricted in its narrowest part to not more than 15 miles. The first white men to penetrate this region were those belonging to the expedition of Lewis and Clark, who crossed the Bitterroot Mountains from the east in the summer of 1805 and traveled laboriously across the plains and then down the valley of the Columbia to the ocean. The subsequent history of eastern Oregon may be divided into the period of occupation by the Hudson's Bay Company and other fur-dealing organizations then the period of gold mining excitement, and finally the period of agricultural settlement, beginning with the Grand Ronde and stretching out to other less attractive localities. Two decades ago, the plains of eastern Oregon, south of the Blue Mountains, were practically an unsettled region. It was then generally recognized that the country was capable of producing a good quality of beef in enormous amounts and available land was rapidly taken up, chiefly under homestead entries, so that now there remains little land worth entering. 
The country, however, is still very sparsely settled. Perhaps the most suggestive fact about the whole region is that no point in the United States lies further from a railroad than the center of this plain. Even the great desert from Death Valley eastward across southern Nevada and Utah is more deeply penetrated by railroad lines than is this great wilderness of eastern Oregon. Traveling southward from the Dalles to the southern part of the state, and then eastward into Idaho, one can go more than a thousand miles without crossing a railroad track, although no point is more than about 160 miles in a direct line from some railroad connection. In the year 1893, the Division of Botany in the Department of Agriculture began to make a comprehensive examination of the vegetation of these plains, beginning with the Columbia Plains proper in the state of Washington. In 1894, this work was continued southward across the Columbia, through the neck of the Dumbbell, and down nearly to the southern boundary of the state of Oregon. In 1895, the work was interrupted for more urgent explorations in the Coeur d'Alene Mountains, but in 1896 it was again taken up and the remainder of the Oregon Plains was covered. The collections made in these three years, though not confined entirely to the Plains region, but including also some of the adjacent forested mountain country, contained not far from 1,800 species, and it is probable that the plains themselves, as distinguished from the forests upon the surrounding mountains, contain not less than 1,000. This year the route followed was from the town of Ontario, on the Snake River, westward to Harney, from which place a side trip was made northward in the Blue Mountains. The expedition then traveled south from Harney to Steins Mountain, then westward across the plains, winding back and forth between the north and south mountain ranges to Fort Klamath, and finally over the Cascades to the railroad. The whole country appears to have been covered at some not very remote geological period by a great sheet of lava, which has since been cracked, uplifted, and depressed in various portions. Almost every plateau ends in an escarpment of naked basalt, known throughout the region as rim rock, perhaps geologically the most characteristic surface feature of the country. Nearly every valley is enclosed by such a formation. The vegetation of the country consists primarily of sagebrush, the well-known Artemisia tridentata of botanists, a shrub three to six feet high closely related to the wormwood of Europe, and having in common with that plant a light gray color and a strongly aromatic odor. Away from stream beds and sinks and the shores of lakes, sagebrush covers the whole country like a gray mantle, and constitutes probably nine-tenths of the total vegetation. It is a plant the herbage of which is eaten by but few animals, and by those only in starvation times one that will grow with little moisture and will stand the widest range of temperature. Sagebrush gives to the country its character. A level stretch is known as a sage plain. The grouse which live there are known as sage hens. The fuel of the region is sagebrush. The odor upon the atmosphere is that of sagebrush. After a season's lack of rain, 
the sagebrush turns to a blackish-gray, and everything has a dead burnt-out look, suggestive of thirst, of hot rocks, and parching winds. But after a soaking spring rain, the sagebrush puts on a new coloration, a delicate pale bluish-green, soft and very pleasing to the eye. Occasionally in some far-off lava-covered basin of the plains, where there has been no rain for months, a stream-bed stretching down from a mountain brings to the thirsty plain the water that has fallen in a summer thunderstorm upon some high peak, and as a consequence the dark gray blanket of sagebrush is lighted up by a line of soft pea-green. If the stream-bed is one that still continues to carry water, the sage-hens gather along it from miles back in the plains, and every morning and evening come down to drink. Sometimes the teal and other ducks, if the mountain is high enough to produce a perennial stream, bring up their broods of young in the tall grass along its margin. In one day's journey of about twenty miles along such a stream, we passed, by actual count, 389 sage hens and brood after brood of ducks, while at some point we started up, at a distance of half a mile, a herd of twenty antelope, which lined up like Indians and trotted away from their drinking place over the rim of the plateau. They were doubtless on their way back to their grazing grounds, where even at the present stage of civilization no hunter ever disturbs them. Regret is sometimes expressed that sagebrush, abundant as it is, does not furnish a succulent, palatable herbage suited to the appetites of cattle and horses. If it did, what an inexhaustible supply of forage these arid plains would support. But those who suggest such a resourceful condition of affairs have forgotten that the cause of its abundance and wide distribution is undoubtedly the protection against the ravages of grazing animals afforded by its disagreeable taste, so that it can grow, produce its seed, and spread almost unchecked. Had it been a grazing plant, suited to the appetite of antelope and deer, and later to that of sheep, horses, and cattle, it would long since have been exhausted, and the Oregon plains have become as bare of sagebrush as some of the Wyoming plains are bare of grass. A few other shrubs form an inconsiderable part of the woody vegetation, but these and the sagebrush make up by no means all the plant life of the country. As the snow melts away in the spring, the well-moistened soil between the Artemisia bushes becomes covered with the ceilings of innumerable annuals. For a few weeks the ground is carpeted with these plants, which flower in the greatest profusion, but after about two months they ripen their seeds, dry up, die, and disappear. Growing with these annuals is another type of plants, tuberous-rooted perennials, which have stored up during the preceding year's growth a large amount of nourishment. They therefore bloom at the first break of spring, go through a brief period of rapid growth, lasting usually a little longer than that of the annuals, and then the newly formed bulbs, well protected by impervious coats against the desiccating influences of a long dry summer, carry over a full supply of plant food for the next spring's blooming. At some points in the higher altitudes of the sage plains, in level or slightly depressed areas which catch and retain for a time some of the water from the melting snows in spring, 
a dense meadow of fine grasses interspersed with the greatest profusion of brilliantly colored flowers is formed and as one of the most abundant is the blue-flowered hyacinth-like camas camasia esculenta these formations are known as camas meadows they cover from a few acres to many hundreds by the middle of summer these meadows drained by some creek or rivulet are dried out the fine black soil extremely sticky when moist gaping open in deep ragged cracks and becoming so hard that an ordinary spade makes scarcely any impression upon it a lump of it broken off with a pick and cut with a knife shows a smooth shining surface very similar to that of pipe clay when the soil of a camas meadow reaches this stage of dryness the vegetation ripens the seeds and dormant bulbous underground parts carrying the plants over the remaining period of drought as one descends from the open plains into the valley bottoms and approaches a lake or the sink of a stream the soil becomes alkaline and the vegetation changes the sagebrush being followed by a somewhat similar hardwood spiny shrub known as greasewood sarcobatus vermiculatus and this in turn in case the alkaline valley bottom is dry is succeeded by a hard-baked soil, absolutely devoid of vegetation. If the valley bottom is moist, the greasewood may be succeeded by a green carpet of salt grass, and this in turn by an incrustation of salt, often with a thin covering of briny water or oozy alkaline mud in the center of it. If, as frequently happens, the water in one of these valley bottoms is nearly fresh, it supports a more luxuriant vegetation, and the dense line of salt grass may be followed by taller succulent marsh grasses, the area covering hundreds and sometimes even thousands of acres, and furnishing an almost inexhaustible supply of forage. In still wetter soil and surrounding the open water, grows a line of tule, as it is called, a species of tall bulrush, known to botanists as Serpus lacustris occidentalis. At the western base of Steins Mountain, in a great groove formed on the east by the sloping mountain base, and on the west by an abruptly ended uplift of the lava crust, lie a long succession of marshes or sloughs, as they are called, connected by a flowing stream, and covering probably a hundred thousand acres. This land constitutes the principal part of an immense ranch, consisting of 180,000 acres of fenced land for the most part well watered indeed it covers all the available water supply of the region and controls a several times greater area of arid grazing land belonging to the government in the spring the cattle are driven out into the open sagebrush where they graze for several weeks upon the abundant spring vegetation later as the dry summer begins and this transient forage supply is exhausted the stock is driven higher upon the plateaus or the mountain slopes where they find an abundance of bunch grass then as the cold weather of autumn sets in and the snows begin the cattle are brought down again to the marshlands and when the swamps are frozen over and the ice is sufficiently thick they are driven out upon it and there eat the air-dried sugar grass and cane grass and tulis finally Forewarned of the opening spring by a warm chinook from the southwest, the Mexican vaqueros, 
or buckaroos as they are more commonly called in the language of the Oregonians, clear the cattle off the ice before it finally breaks up. Every summer, an immense amount of hay is secured from these great meadows, about 3,000 tons being annually cut and stacked for winter use on this particular ranch. During the storms of winter, the cattle on the ranch are, as far as possible, fed and sheltered, but heavy losses from freezing and starvation frequently occur. In 1889-90 occurred one of those long hard winters which are expected in eastern Oregon perhaps once in ten years. Snow began to fall earlier than usual and continued almost incessantly throughout the winter. The stock caught out upon the range were wholly inaccessible and could not be brought into the corrals. The cattle that were under shelter at the time the conditions became serious were fed as long as the supply of hay lasted, and then, the spring not breaking at its accustomed season, the animals slowly starved. The loss by starvation in the entire region varied from 30 to 70 and even 90 percent. Those stock raisers who were well prepared for such an emergency escaped with a setback of a year or two in profits. But those who were taken in the worst condition were in many cases ruined. The Indians who once lived upon these plains found, through centuries of slowly gathered experience, not only that they could exist, but that they could live in comfort, building themselves shelters of tules and of juniper brush, and easily obtaining an abundant supply of game and rich nutritious food with all the articles necessary to the manufacture of their various implements, their clothing, their cooking utensils, and in fact, all the other necessaries of an outer existence and the luxuries of savage life. Perhaps no Indians in the far northwest have been guided by better counsels from their chiefs, have shown a greater desire to assume the conditions of civilized life, and have proved themselves more capable of development under those conditions than the Klamath Indians of Oregon. They are now gathered together upon a reservation about 40 miles by 60 in extent, in the southwestern part of the Oregon Plains, in a country partly forested and partly covered with sagebrush. The land they occupy is a part of that upon which their ancestors lived, and thus, not having been removed from the conditions under which they developed, they furnish an excellent opportunity for observing an intelligent Indian tribe in process of civilization, still retaining the best and most deeply rooted of their old customs and habits, and substituting for the less useful ones the improvements of civilization, yet not giving up in a generation the old tendencies of centuries. These Indians graze cattle and horses, cut hay for winter use, and raise a small quantity of grain and occasionally a few vegetables. They build fences around their separate farms and are now building houses of sawed lumber. Their blacksmiths, carpenters, shoemakers, and other artisans being educated at the agency schools. At least a hundred species of the native plants of the region are still used by the Klamaths in one way or another. One of their staple farinaceous foods is the seed of the great yellow water lily of the northwest, Nymphia polysepala, 
which grows in inexhaustible quantities in the marshes of the reservation. The bulbs of the camas plant, of which enormous amounts are pried out of the ground in spring with a camas stick or digger, furnish another excellent and favorite food. The most important of their fleshy fruits is the huckleberry, Vaccinium myrtilloides, which covers the mountain slopes in some parts of the neighboring cascades. The best of their fibers is a perennial blue-flowered flax, Linum luvisii, which grows without irrigation in the open sagebrush at higher altitudes. They get a beautiful lemon-yellow permanent dye from a yellow lichen, Evernia vulpina, which grows abundantly on the trunks of trees in the pine forests. Some of these plants and others equally useful may well attract the attention of agricultural experimenters. In view of the present agricultural depression, which appears to be especially severe in the plains of eastern Oregon, the question naturally arises what the future promises in the way of relief. Whether the agricultural capacities of the region are such as to offer a fair prospect of relief by some modification of the prevailing system, or whether the result must be the gradual abandonment of present settlements. This is notably one of those regions in which money is made out of only one product, in this case forage. The forage crop is not immediately exchanged for money, but is used to fatten cattle for beef, to raise horses for farm and other purposes, and to grow sheep for wool. At present, the low price of wool has practically put an end to sheep grazing. The low price of horses, as draft animals, has resulted in the inability of the ranchers to market their stock, horses fresh from the range being now worth in some parts of Oregon no more than $5 per head. The actual products of the region, therefore, are essentially limited to one, namely beef cattle, and the price of these is so low that the income is barely sufficient to pay the expenses of managing the ranch. One practical modification of the present system is clearly apparent to the traveler. Ranchers have been accustomed under the high prices of former years to neglect the ordinary processes of farming and to purchase their entire food supply from the outside, paying not merely the first cost of the food in eastern markets, but the cost of railroad transportation and of a long wagon haul besides. The ranchers of the plains have assumed rather than proved by experience that the country is incapable of producing the ordinary farm crops such as are necessary for family use. There is no question that the proper use for gardens and field crops of some of the water which now either goes to waste or is turned upon grazing lands would be a most important step toward bettering the present agricultural conditions. This lesson, indeed, is now being learned practically from force of necessity, and in many places where it has been assumed from the occasional early or late frosts that certain crops could not be grown, it is now found that with proper foresight and care, excellent crops are produced. Another lesson to be drawn from the fact that the native races obtained an abundant subsistence from these same plains in which a civilized race now finds it hard to subsist is that it is impossible to carry on with success in an arid region 
an agriculture developed in a humid region, unless important modifications are introduced. This lesson has already been learned in some other parts of the country, as, for example, in western Kansas, in Indian Territory, and in northern Texas, where, after years of largely unsuccessful trials, it was found impossible to depend upon the typical American stock feed, Indian corn, but it was found possible to grow a cereal of the old world, now commonly known as kafir corn. This has been found to flourish under conditions too arid for Indian corn, to produce heavy crops, and to have about the same nutritive qualities as that product for feeding farm stock of all kinds, or for human food. There is a great sub-arid belt in that region in which kafir corn has now become the staple crop, and while there is no great demand for it in the markets of the world, and it is not therefore directly convertible into money, yet when transformed into pork, beef, or draft animals, it brings quite as good a price as Indian corn. Though this particular crop is probably not suited to the plains of Oregon, it suggests strongly that there may be equally valuable plants well adapted to that region. The observations we have just made on the native plants demonstrate the fact that there are many food-producing species which stand the climate well, and there is a reasonable probability that some of them might, by careful cultivation and selection, be turned into useful agricultural products. The bringing about of such a result, however, can be the outcome only of long and laborious experimentation, and it offers no immediate solution of the present problem. There is one phase of wastefulness of the natural resources of the United States which a trip across the plains of Oregon particularly impresses upon the traveler, namely the careless destruction of our great natural wealth of forage. It is doubtless to this that the local aggravation of the present agricultural depression is in some parts of the country due. After an educational campaign of twenty years, the government has recently appointed a commission to report a practical plan of dealing with the forestry problem of the United States. From the condition of our great grazing areas in the West, it seems probable that the time will come when a similar popular demand will be made upon the government for some means of preventing the exhaustion of the forage supply on the public lands. Continued overgrazing year after year, if sufficiently excessive, unquestionably kills out the native forage plants, which are then replaced largely by introduced weeds. The original nutritious grasses never regain their former luxuriance, and sometimes are almost exterminated. Under moderate grazing, the native species produce yearly a good crop, or if even slightly overgrazed, will after a few years of rest regain their former abundance. Only a comparatively small percentage of the arid grazing lands of the West are under private ownership. Most of the grazing is done upon the public lands. When the price of beef or other product of grazing was high, as it was, for example, ten years ago, it was to the immediate interest of every cattle owner to fatten the largest number of stock in the briefest possible time, regardless of the effect of so doing upon the future productiveness of forage. Not only is the system a bad one theoretically, 
but its practical effects are manifest in the actual conditions of many portions of our grazing regions today and if the prices of the products of grazing continue high enough to make grazing a profitable industry the condition of affairs is bound to become gradually worse and we shall ultimately in section after section ruin our grazing lands the correction of the evil may be brought about it seems to me by one of three methods first by a system of licenses which shall regulate the number of cattle to be grazed on a given area a similar system has been proposed for our forest lands and some plan of the kind seems likely to be adopted the principal objection to licenses in the case of grazing lands is that the responsibility of the government would be great and the administration of such a law would add enormously to the machinery of the executive a second and perhaps preferable method is the private ownership of land it is evident that it is to the advantage of an owner to maintain his land at its greatest continued productiveness and he would not therefore seriously overgraze it as a matter of fact the great cattle ranges which are either owned by individuals or corporations or are essentially theirs through the control of the available water supply are in far better condition today than the public lands which are common grazing grounds and many of the areas thus controlled are in just as good condition as they ever were a third method of securing responsible management of grazing lands is a long-term lease from the government the principal objection of cattlemen to private ownership of land is the necessity of paying taxes this difficulty would be obviated by a lease of the land from the government and even though the amount paid were small the advantage of an interested management would prove of the highest benefit to the general public while the government would still retain its title to the land and after the expiration of the lease could make new terms based on longer experience and changed conditions End of section 2